You're listening to the Lead On Podcast, where we discuss experiences in the armed forces while exploring lessons from military leaders. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Lead On Lessons from Military Leaders. I'm David Deary, president of the Enlisted Leadership Foundation. You might be able to see behind me that it's Christmas time. So regardless when you're seeing this, happy holidays, Merry Christmas. So joining us today is Joe Gregatich. Joe is a, an old friend of mine. Uh, Joe and I served together back, uh, we met in 2008. Joe, Joe joined the Navy in 1983, a year before I did. He completed 32 years of service before he trans- transitioned out a few years ago. Uh, Joe, Joe is joining us today from his home where he, uh, up in Washington State, he lives in Ocean Shores, Washington, where he is uh, uh, owns a business called Two Cool Sports, where he and his wife, Pam, giving back to the community up there. Joe, thanks for joining me today. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me, David. I'm doing great. <laughs> great. It's good to see you. <laughs> so so listen, uh, I like to start uh, all of our podcasts off with a little question. <clears throat> so as leaders, we give advice. Uh, it's what we do, whether it's solicited or not. And and I think the older the older we get, the more unsolicited our advice is. Uh, we, we give it without being solicited for it. Let me ask you, uh, what's the worst piece of leadership advice someone ever gave Joe Gregatich? Oh, man, I bet you it was a first class about 25, 30 years ago when he said, uh, you have to tell people what to do in order to get things done. Oh, really? You got to tell them so people people won't just follow you just because of who you are? You got to tell them what to do? I'd like to think on the grounds that I would rather tell them what to do instead of how to do it. So the worst advice was telling some, you have to tell them how to do it in order to get it done. Instead, it's a lot easier to tell them what needs to be done, asking them how are they gonna get it done, and it gives them a a little bit of ownership of the task at hand. And they're a little bit more proud of getting it done because they're getting it done because they're getting it done, not because I want them to get it done. So, you know, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, that, that's not great. You know, great advice he gave you great. How you spun it, uh, to, to, to use it, uh, to your advantage and, and encourage people to make decisions to, uh, to take ownership and get things done. I've probably been guilty of, of doing what that first class told you to do and had people come back and say, you know, Dave, if you want to do it, you could just do it. Uh, so good on you. Um, so listen, at 32 years you served, um, you were a young young person because uh, you're only about 40 years old now. Yeah, thanks. Um, but what, what was it? Yeah. So what was it that got you to join the Navy in the first place? My mom, she drove me down to the recruiter. <laughs> okay. The rest but, you know, you're, you're raised in Ohio. So, so I, what was wrong with Ohio? Why did you want to leave Ohio and go, go in the Navy? Uh, long story short, uh, when I joined the Navy, I had no idea I was actually joining the Navy. So uh, I was actually going in to be a, a CB, uh, but there was a nine-month delayed entry program, and I got the call from a recruiter that someone broke his leg, and I took his orders, and they said, oh, it would be cool, because I wanted to be a cop, too. So they said, well, you can be a bozo because that's the quickest way to become a cop, because back then, you had to be an E5. So, yeah, be a bozo and then you can be a police officer. But uh, little did I know that uh, you had to be an E5. They didn't tell me that when I joined. So, yeah. but uh, 
those recruiters. Yeah, but I actually uh, I came in in a three by six, so I actually got out of the Navy for, uh, after three years and went to college for a year and a half, and then I, I was approached because uh, I was in the reserves and I was an instructor, so I was approached to come back in the Navy and go instruct on the West Coast. Uh, and back then it was the LCM eight boats, the knuckle buster. So, and then while I was in San Diego to report, uh, I got the call that, uh, hey, uh, your orders are being modified. I'm going to Hawaii and I was in charge of uh, the elite honor guard honors and ceremonies over there for three years. Yeah, you've had a really unique career uh, as far as the jobs that you were able to do over those 30 years. You just mentioned the, the, honor, the honor guard working at the, uh, uh, the boathouse for the command of the Pacific Fleet, if I remember correctly. Uh, and when I met you many years after that, you were uh, then a senior chief, uh, uh, E-8 for those in the other services, and you were driving uh, uh, LCACs, landing craft, air cushion, uh, hovercrafts. So, you know, in the mindset of leadership, let me ask you, uh, clearly as a craft master, when you're the captain of your own craft and you're responsible for the crew and all the, the troops and gear that you are transporting ashore and deployments and what have you, what did you learn along the way growing up in the Navy to prepare you to be a leader at that level? Uh, not to micromanage. So, I mean, you got a tight-knit crew, but uh, there's usually two or three other boats that go with you, plus a maintenance maintenance team. So there's about 60 in a detachment. So uh, not to micromanage, but to, to get everybody on board as a team, team player, uh, and, and make everybody aware that uh, while we're deployed, this is a team thing. It's not an individual thing. So everybody had a hand in successful deployments, and it, it taught me how to be how to step back a little bit and let the uh, the uh, middle the E fives the middle leadership actually take some responsibility. Uh, and when, we're, when there's some downtime, to get some extra quals that they normally wouldn't get at ACU fives. And uh, for the most part, most of my debts that I ran, everyone got them outside qual on a ship, whether it be EL or Seesaw or, or uh, an Ops or uh, on the bridge. So everybody had a hand in something within their rate uh, so they can promote. So to answer your question, not to micromanage, but to step back, let them uh, let them shine. And just to fill in some holes for those that may not be familiar. So uh, in the, in the Navy, uh, there's different qualifications, just like every branch of the military has qualifications for your job. And when you're serving on board ships, there's additional qualifications that you could obtain. And what Joe is talking about in the crews that operate these hovercrafts, uh, some of these that are engineers, for example, won't have opportunity to maybe get some traditional engineering qualifications that their peers that are operating on ships might get. So what Joe was able to do is uh, instead of micromanaging, from what I hear, Joe, instead of micromanaging and keeping everybody in-house, only working on LCAC, staying uh, on your craft, you allowed your crew, if not encouraged your crew, to go and explore the ship, get to know the people on the ship, and see where they can integrate with the crew of the host ship. Because you were just riding on the ship. They were transporting you to, to wherever the uh, operation was taking place. Yeah, one team, one fight. That's what we always preach, so why not, why not act it? So be, be part of the yeah be part of the ship's yeah, crew too, and they did. They stood watches and everything. So, so what's the uh, you know what's the craziest thing? We talked about craziness a little bit. Uh, what's one of the craziest uh, 
craziest things or, or oddest things or most stressful things in your career? Well, there's that you quite have. a few. That AC-5 with you under your leadership actually was, a, we actually had a murder and it was my, uh, my load master who was standing watch and uh, was murdered that night. But it was the, uh, the next morning where uh, everybody was kind of footed to another part of the base uh, for the investigation. And uh, the leadership that came together in organizing uh, 600 people uh, and keeping them calm to the point, everybody at that point knew something happened, but they didn't know exactly what happened. I mean, even for us as senior leaders, we didn't know exactly what happened. We just knew what, you know what I mean? So to organize everybody, keep them calm, keep uh, the, the lines, the line, everybody had to line up for the NCIS investigators and just keeping them occupied with their minds set. It was, uh, that was probably the weirdest and most, uh, you don't plan for something like that. And, and you get to call up four or five in the morning, you know, come to work, something happened. You don't know what happened. And when you get there, you're just devastated. So, um, but the leadership uh, really came together that day. And I, I believe that was the weirdest thing that ever happened to me, but it was also, uh, it was uh, a life experience uh, to say, to say the least, uh, as tragic as it was. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, that, that was a, uh... You're right. Yeah, you know, they doesn't matter the leadership schools, the preparatory schools, uh, you know that that you and I have both attended as command master chiefs. Uh, that those are scenarios, yeah. and they're not that in that. They're not in that for. teaching syllabus. Um, that's for sure. No, that's for sure, isn't it? So, you know, and and uh, there there was so that was a a stressful and rather sad time uh, that that went on for about a month. Uh, a couple months, actually, when you, you look at everything that transpired as a result of that incident. Um, and it's still, you know, it's, that's been, gosh, going on 15 years. Um, but every time I go on the compound, you know, the guard shack is still there, still standing. Uh, yeah. You know, but but there's been some fun times uh, as well with ACU-5. Um, I, <laughs> you, 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 shared a, you shared a story about a, I think it was AC5 about, you know, the, the oh, yeah. captain just wanted a certain answer. We were tasked answer. with uh, getting about 45 boats up for, I think it was Don Blitz, and uh, and then revamping uh, IEM and maintenance and, and integrating training, uh, having the, given them ownership of the boats. And uh, not, nothing nothing the captain wanted actually worked. So we actually had a meeting gone into his office, and he would do well, what? about this can we do this and I'm like, no sir this is why we can't do this it doesn't work that way he says well what if we do this and i'm like no sir you can't do it and i show him that you know we had all the data i, I knew the questions he was going to ask so we came in there and i said no i had solutions this is what we can do uh we made a a, a time schedule and and moved everybody uh so it made more sense between maintenance training and up up uh deployments and and dawn blitz was, was was huge so it was just a lot of moving uh moving factors that uh i don't think he was aware of at the time and i just kept saying no sir we couldn't do it and then he he paused and he says so the xo's uh office is right next to the co's and and he paused and he says uh xo and then the xo comes around the corner he says yes sir and the captain says that'll be all so he just wanted to hear a yes sir in this whole conversation but uh great captain captain harrington uh 
Loved the guy to death. Uh, good leader. Very strict, very stern, but uh, really took care of his people. Uh, and I wasn't afraid to tell him no, and I think that's why we got got along so well. I wasn't going to sugarcoat nothing. If it didn't work, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to sugarcoat it to, to you know to give him a yes or yeah we'll get it done when it's quite impossible uh, to get it done in the amount of time that we needed to get it done. But we we managed to get it done. We were successful, uh, but it was it was my not not, not the. You know, so I I just want to tie these these stories together. There's a essential theme. Um, when you talk about not micromanaging uh, the sailors, your team, uh, encouraging them to go on and uh, integrate to, to you know, get those qualifications and then uh, working together during the tragedy where, where we had the murder. And then even when it comes to telling the, the, the captain, no, um, oftentimes because you're putting people first, training, uh, maintenance, and, and not doing things at a cost or at, a, at an expense just to, so you can, so the guy can hear, yes, sir. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the, it's, it's like this servant leadership as a leader uh, serving, uh, we serve, um, I would look at servant leadership beyond just serving those that, that we have the honor to be able to be responsible for, but we're serving some, something even bigger, right? We're, we're, you know, we're, uh, you, you service takes on so many different forms, if you will. Would you, I mean, I'm not really defining it so well. So how would you define in your, in your mind, what, what would you say, or what does servant mean, leadership mean to you? Look, as a senior leader and you're in charge and you're the boss, the best advice I can give you is you're not a hundred and you don't have to do it all. You're responsible for it all, but you don't have to do it all. So servant leadership, uh, I was introduced to that in about 2009, 2010, and it, it really changed my life and the way I led. Uh, I would think I was more of a coach style of leadership before the servant leadership, even though servant leadership ties into coaching. But there's there's also, uh, you know, uh, a little bit more uh, to it than that. But um, When I was a command master chief and the captain wanted something done, the worst thing you can do is walk into the chief's mess and say, look, the captain wants to get this done. Yeah, I just I just took all my responsibility and just put it on the captain. So now they're going to work for the captain and not me. Instead, I walked into the mess and they, they knew I just came from the captain. I said, all right, this is what needs to get done. How are we going to do it? And whether they broke up in the teams or we just stood there and, and had a conversation how we were going to do it and come back later that day with and a plan. Uh, it gives back to that ownership thing. So I gave the mess ownership of the task the captain gave. Uh, another example is we had a DRB for a sailor, uh, one of the best DRBs uh, ever. And the captain always allowed us to be, uh, I never thought much about sending us any type of sailor to the captain. In my opinion, sending someone to mass, unless it was for, you know, a serious misdemeanor or a felony, you know, something out of our hands. But any any leadership issue, whereas, it, you know, I had to go to mass or see the captain, I didn't like that. I, that's letting the captain handle the leadership issue. And I wasn't about that. We can handle it at our level. Uh, and then I'll debrief the captain, and this is what we would like done. If the captain still wanted to see him at mass, he still, still wanted to see him at mass, but at least he gave, he always gave us the opportunity of handling. But this one particular DRB, we had a seaman 
in uh, deck department. He was about 28 years old, older guy, uh, a little bit more mature, but a lot quiet. Uh, we didn't have a first class or a chief in deck at the time, but we had a stellar second class, Steven Alonzo. He's first class at AC5 right, right now. But Steve Alonzo was basically the LCPO of deck department as an E5 and had a lot of responsibility. And I would help out as a former Bozo mate every now and then, but I kind of let him handle it. And some of the other chiefs always helped out as well. Uh, but he had this one 28-year-old who was six years older than Alonzo at the time, and he just did not like the Navy. He was anti-Navy. So what did Alonzo do? He said, I'm mess cranking. So just to get him out of the hair. Well, I didn't know that. And while he was mess cranking, I'm like, all right, he's already three days into it. And so guess what? He was cranky there too. Uh, nobody wanted to work with him. So where do you stick the, you know, where do you stick the guy you don't want to be around? In the deep sink, the worst possible position in mess cranking. So you got a 28-year-old that's been around a while, washing all the cooks, you know, and all the cooks are 22, 23 years old too. And it's 28-year-olds taking all these orders from all these younger guys who are more senior to him and rank wise but it, it was a terrible catastrophe well he had enough of the navy he went up to his birthing he packed everything his sea bag he went out on deck and threw it overboard he threw out he threw everything overboard off the ship and when i got where did i go he did what all right so we were a little upset about that and uh, you know they, they wrote him up and he was scheduled for drb but this is where servant leadership came Nobody, nobody knew this kid. Nobody knew him on a personal level. You know, when someone comes to work late, you give him a chance and he comes to work late the next day and you're going to give him a counseling chip. But no one stops to take the, you know, to have a conversation with this person and actually find out why he's being late. So, and that's where servant leadership comes in. So I dug into this uh, kid's past. Uh, I shouldn't say kid. He was an older guy, 20 years old. Uh, and I found something that was just, uh, I had goosebumps when I found out, and he would never know it because he never bragged about it and never talked about it. So I went along with the DRB, and I brought him in, and I had all the Chiefs mess in there. And I let him start off, and, oh, David, it was it was a brilliant uh, uh, acting job by him because guess what? He, he wanted out of the Navy so bad, he wanted to piss the Chiefs off in DRB. So if you can imagine all the F-bombs and, you know, telling the Chiefs to shut up and it was, and I'm trying to maintain my composure because I kind of know what's going to happen in this DRB. The kid doesn't know I know. Uh, nobody knows I, what I know, but nobody, you know, they took the time to find out about what I know. So anyways, during the DRB, I mean, we had a Master Chief Bob Grimmer. He was an AC5 and maintenance. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, salty old Bob. He, he really. I'm like, Bob. Hey, Bob, sit down, calm down. It's okay. You know, and I. And this was uh, Eric Rourke, Seaman Eric Rourke. And uh, go ahead, Rourke, uh, continue on. Yeah, I just want another name. I don't want to deal with this. I didn't sign up for this. And I said, Well, Eric, let me tell you, you're a war hero. I know where you've been. So he did a tour in Iraq. He had a squad. And out of the out of his squad, he managed to save only one of them, you know, in a heavy firefight in Fallujah. He's he's got a bronze star. So what what happened was he got out of the Marine Corps, missed it, and decided to come back in the Navy as a SEAL. So worst, I don't like the way they do things in the SEAL. But when you ring the bell or drop off, you don't make it, and you do the needs of the Navy. So that's what happened to Seaman Rourke. He signed up to be a SEAL. He, he actually rang the bell. He didn't, he didn't like being a SEAL. And then they, they uh, assigned him to our ship. And that didn't want to be there. So how can I make it better for him? 
So anyways, during the DRB, and I, I'm telling Rourke, I'm like, you're a war hero. You did a, you do, you've seen more combat. You've done more for this country than me and Master Chief Grimmer has done in 60 years combined. I salute you. I understand why you don't want to be here. I understand why you don't want to, you didn't sign up for this stuff. And I'm here to congratulate you. And I shook his hand. And then I asked him to leave the chief's mess. And then that was one a lessons learned uh, for the chief's mess is when I started telling him, hey, get to know your people. I'll find out why they're acting the way they're acting in, in order to, you know, to get to the root of the problem to make it better for everybody. In the long run, we had a talk with work. We got together as a chief's mess, got him his uniforms. And then Doc, who also was uh, on the green side in, the, in Iraq, uh, can relate to Seaman Rourke. So we allowed Seaman Rourke to, to work uh, for Doc. The captain, once the, so that before the DRB, I already told the captain what I knew of Seaman Rourke. So we already knew the captain wasn't going to take in the mass. So he, he allowed us that, uh, he approved everything, let him work for Doc, and he worked out great. To this day, Seaman Rourke, I believe, just became a lieutenant on a fire department in, in New York. He's doing great. And ever since that experience, uh, it's changed his life. And in fact, I, I talked to Steve wow. Alonzo uh, not too long ago, and he, he told me, hey, I, I hung out with him uh, when I was home on leave. And uh, yeah, he's turned his whole life around was because of that that experience where someone actually took the time to acknowledge, you know, what he's done. So that ties into servant leadership once again. So know your people, find out why they're doing what they're doing in order to get to the root of the problem so you can, so everybody's better. Instead of being a dictator, hey, you're going to mass. Yeah, and that's the easy way out. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's the easy way out, taking him to mass, making somebody else's problem, kick him out. Uh, and and that's, that doesn't solve anything. You got to get to the heart of the issue. There's a reason why people act the way they act. Um, you know, and, and we're going to run a little bit long. There's one more servant leadership story that I want you to share. Um, and it happened on uh, the USS Dewey. And again, getting to know your people and say, and, and a lot of what you're talking about, especially at a senior position, is is not is it's not just setting an example, but sometimes you're put in a position. Not sometimes you're put in a position because you've established yourself, and there's trust. Leadership trusts you, and they trust you to make the right decisions. And oftentimes, we need the the chief's mess in our case, or those underneath us. Hey, you may not understand it. You may not see the big picture, but I do. So you trust me. And there's one of those trust situations when you get a phone call from the public affairs officer at Naval Base San Diego because they wanted a, a, a one of the original Dewey crew members from World War II rode on the their first Dewey ship. Uh, if I remember, this, this man was on uh, hospice and he had just wanted to lay eyes on a dis new destroyer called Dewey. But that wasn't enough for Joe Gregatich. <laughs> Funny you brought that up. Uh, we didn't talk about this, David. So you're throwing me too blue. No, that was that's a beautiful story. It's actually still one of the most viewed uh, topics yeah. on the internet. If you look up Bud Cloud, that's his name. He was an EM too. Yeah, he, he his uh, his daughter just wanted to. He was he had four or five days left to uh, to you know be with us, and then uh, when we met him, I found. Uh, I found out he was on the Dewey. I'm like, we're the Dewey. So it was like, wow. They had no idea we were the Dewey. They weren't coming to see the Dewey. They're just coming to see a ship. So I got my Sailor of the Year 
uh, with me, and I got some of the other, I got the first class mess. Okay. I got half the chief's mess, uh, and we wheeled Bud Cloud in, and then they carried him in the wheelchair, and we put him on the forecastle, and then we had a good hundred people up there, first classes and chiefs, and uh, we were just talking. Uh, then we find out he was actually on the Dewey in Pearl Harbor. Uh, so, so uh, I, I said, I, I tell uh, EM1 Flores, I said, hey, go down to the mess decks, take off the picture off the wall. We actually got his a picture of the ship during World, you know, during Pearl Harbor. So he goes up and, wow, Bud Clouds, isn't it? He's in the picture. He's like, there's my girl. You know, he's got tears. There's my, oh, there's me. Right. So he's actually in this historical picture that we just happen to take off the Mestex just to show him a picture of the ship. And he just happens to be wow. in the picture. And so he went on December 7th, him and a buddy had, had the duty and he was drinking milk in the Mestex when, when everything was uh, happening. And uh, the Dewey was actually sinking. So it was tied up next to another ship and that was sinking. And when it was tied up, um, it was bringing the Dewey over. So it was sinking the Dewey. The only thing that saved the Dewey, Bud said, was, you know, the stacks back then were a little bit bigger. And the stack caught the stack of the other, or the the, the uh, port side of the other ship, and it cracked the stack. And all that weight lifted them back up so they didn't they didn't actually sink. But the, they were going down, and he was, on, he was on board when that was happening. So that was a, a very memorable event. Uh, we were all touched. Uh, Dion Eisman, my gunner's mate at the time, he, he was moved. He was in charge of our funeral detail. We did some funeral details on the on the you know on the flight deck, underway and stuff. And he was familiar. The 21 gun salute, me being in charge of honors and ceremonies, had some pointers too. And he actually, they we actually sent a crew to uh, the uh, memorial uh, up in Riverside, uh, and we we. We sent butt, butt off properly with a, a 21 gun salute by, by our guys. It was a, it was incredible. And then uh, shoot, a month later we got uh, we saw that internet post. We had no idea. I mean, we didn't do it for the accolades or anything like that. We just I I was impressed that he one he was on the Dewey, two he was on the Dewey during Pearl Harbor, three he's in a picture on our ship. It, it was just an incredible so. We gave him coins, hats, and from what I understand, read reading the article, he, he was buried with none, none of his tools that he was scheduled to be buried with, he, all the coins and hats that we gave him that day. So uh, four days later, uh, Bud passed. So I'm glad I'm glad we sent him off the right way. It was, uh, it was sad to see him go, but it was uh, an experience I'll never forget. It was awesome. It was awesome. Well, that's an experience that your crew will never forget as well. Um, and, you know, as a servant leader, I think that we can ask for nothing more than uh, to be able to make things better, you know, for those that, that we have opportunity to lead. And, you know, hopefully they'll go on and continue to, you know, lead better than us and, and just replicate what we do that much better. So, listen, uh, before we take off, one last question for you, Joe. Uh, what's the biggest leadership mistake that you've made, but you're lucky, right? We all have had those uh, leadership errors, like, man, I dodged a bullet this time. Uh, you ever dodged any bullets? Of course. Don't we all? Uh, look, instead of telling you about all my mistakes and dodging bullets, let me just, let me just leave you with this. Uh, 
A lot of the sailors today, E5s, E6s, are trying to get to that pinnacle in their career where they decide to make it a career and they want to become a chief. And we don't want that. You know, as me as a command master chief, I never wanted that perfect sailor that checks all the boxes. I want, I want those that make the mistakes. Uh, because by the time they got get to me, they've made the mistake. I'm pretty sure that if they learn from their mistake, they won't make it again. Nobody's perfect. But uh, sometimes, you know, those checks in the boxes are trying to make people perfect. And they got it in their head. They think they're perfect. And none of us are perfect. It took me uh, 17 years to even make chief. So, you know, you know I didn't ever quit. But I was just never good enough. I never had that LPO at sea because I was always in the amphib. So I'm not going to blame it on anything but me and my test-taking skills. But I never had a mentor either back then. So, you know, it's just nobody's perfect. So, yeah, I've, I've come across a lot of close calls. Uh, but I've always managed to uh, get off the fence and sway to the right. You know, just if you think it's wrong and it smells like it's wrong, guess what? It's wrong. It's, it's probably wrong. So always do the right thing every time. And uh, I think that was a motto at AC5 years ago. Always do the right thing every time the first time. So, and I've kind of lived by that. Uh, you know, I still have made mistakes. And, you know, like Patton once said, you know, we don't measure one's success on how high they ascertain themselves on the ladder of a success. We measure one's success is how far they've fallen and how high they climb back up. So thank you, Joe, for spending time with us today. Thank you, everyone listening, for tuning in. Once again, this has been Lead On, Lessons from Military Leaders.H, today with Joe Gregatech, Navy Retired Command Master Chief. I'm David Deary, President of the Lissa Leadership Foundation. Uh, join us every 1st and the 15th Military Paydays for another edition of Lead On, Lessons from Military Leaders.